Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians, the book of Galatians. We're starting a new sermon series today through Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. You may have heard of the term, pay it forward. Pay it forward. It's a philosophy of life where if somebody does a good deed for you and you can't necessarily pay them back, you pay it forward by doing a good deed to somebody else down the road. Pay it forward. It's this whole philosophy of life. If you have good things happen to you, you in turn do good things to others. It's a way to pay back the goodness done to you. A few years ago, back on Facebook, a movement exploded called the Karma Experiment. Over a million people from 39 countries participated in the Karma Experiment. What was the Karma Experiment? Well, it's an organization that motivates people to do random acts of kindness around the world so that the world will be a better place. And so if people just pay it forward, if people do random acts of kindness, if people just do good, then we will live in this utopia and we'll never have problems and we'll just live in a nice, fun world where everybody gets along. Now that sounds very good, doesn't it? It sounds noble. The karma experiment. Who doesn't want to be nice? Who doesn't want to be kind? Who doesn't want to see our world a better place? But let me ask you a question. Why is it called the karma experiment? What's the catch to the karma experiment? What is karma? Karma is cosmic cause and effect. If you do enough random acts of kindness, you're stacking up good karma so that good deeds will happen back to you. If for some reason you don't do enough good deeds, you're not going to have good karma coming back to you. So here's the catch of the karma experiment. It's really kind of a frustrating thing. You better make sure you do enough good so that good karma will come back to you. If you don't do enough good, you better watch out because something bad's going to happen to you down the road. You may suffer. And so, in essence, you think about how selfless this karma experiment really is. It's not really that selfless, is it? It's actually pretty self-centered. I better keep doing enough good so that good things keep happening to me. And I would probably venture to say that millions of people across the planet operate on this mentality, this karma-type mentality. And sadly, a lot of Christians operate this same way as well. Maybe this is how you approach life. And here's the question. Is this really good news? If you operate under karma, if you operate under this whole um, pay-it-forward mentality. Because here's the question. How do you know you've done enough good? How do you know you've been kind enough? How do you know you've stacked up enough good deeds that would outweigh your bad deeds? And so at the end of the day, you're really trying really hard to make sure that you're doing your best 
to make sure you end up with good karma. Now, most of you here would probably say, I don't believe in karma. That's an Eastern religion. I don't operate that way. But let me challenge your thinking for a moment. I think Christians can lose track of the gospel. And when we lose track of the gospel, we tend to fall into three different types of ditches. Three ditches that we're prone to fall into, we're prone to wander into as Christians. So what are these ditches? Well, here's ditch number one. If we lose track of the gospel, we we fall into what's called the ditch of legalism. The ditch of legalism. Legalism says, I've got to really try hard to make sure that I earn points with God so that he's happy with me. You're very religious. You maybe look down upon others who aren't quite as religious as you. You've got your rules. If I just live by the rules, if I just do the right thing, then God is somehow bound to love me based upon my performance. You're on the treadmill of performance. You're always trying to do enough good so that God will love you back. It's the, it's the ditch of legalism. And some of you may actually be falling into that ditch, the ditch of legalism. Well, there's another ditch that sometimes Christians fall into if they lose track of the gospel. It's the ditch of despair, the ditch of despair. Well, God could never love me. I've sinned way beyond God's reach. If I, if I sin one more time, I'm going to lose my salvation. You live in fear. You live in self-loathing. You, you wonder if God could ever love you as a Christian. You wonder if you've sinned so bad, so far, that God just turns his back upon you, and you view God more as a judge that's, that's unhappy with you, ready to thump you, than he is a heavenly father that loves you. And that leads to despair. It leads to, to guilt. It leads to condemnation. So you've got the ditch of legalism, you've got the ditch of despair, and there's a third ditch that some Christians fall prey to. I call it the ditch of recklessness, the ditch of recklessness. This is the idea that, hey, I'm saved, I said the prayer, I asked Jesus into my heart, I walked the aisle, I got baptized, once saved, always saved, I know I'm going to heaven, I really love to sin. God really loves to forgive. That's a great relationship. So you just live however you want in recklessness, banking on the fact that, hey, I'm saved. I got my free ticket to heaven. I can live however I want. All of these ditches are ditches that I think Christians are prone to fall into from time to time if we lose track of the gospel. So maybe you're here today and you struggle with legalism, always trying to earn God's approval, always looking down upon others. Maybe you fall into the ditch of of despair, wondering if God could actually even love you, if if you've fallen out of his good graces, if you've lost your salvation. And some of you may just be living in recklessness where you're just banking on the fact that your sins are forgiven, but you can live however you want. All three of these ditches are disastrous to your spiritual health. And this is where the book of Galatians comes in to answer some of these problems. So we are beginning today to look at Paul's letter to the Galatians. And I think this book is for Christians who struggle with these three areas. Legalism, despair, recklessness. Now here's the problem. We know we've been saved by grace alone. 
but we often don't know how to live by grace alone. How do you live by grace alone? The book of Galatians is going to address that. It's going to talk about how you get saved by grace alone, but it's going to talk about how do, you, how do you live the Christian life by grace alone. So for this morning, we're just going to look at the greeting. We're going to look at Paul's introduction, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. So let's read that together. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, th- this opening section is, is the gospel in a nutshell. We're going to talk about that. If you want to, if somebody asks you, what's the gospel? I'm going to help you understand a summary, distinct statement here that Paul gives as far as what the gospel is. But here's the main point Paul's driving home just from the very beginning of the book of Galatians. What's the big idea of this opening section? What's the, what's the central theme? Here's the big idea. You and I desperately need rescuing from bondage to sin. There's a desperate need for being rescued. Rescued from what? Well, from bondage. Bondage to what? Bondage to sin. Paul addresses that here. So what I want us to do this morning is this this opening five verses sets the stage for the entire book of Galatians. So what I want us to do for this morning is just explore three aspects. The first two, very briefly. The third one, we'll spend most of our time on this morning. Three aspects to the opening to the book of Galatians. And So here's the first that we're going to discover. Paul's authority. Paul's authority. Paul starts out his letter the way all ancient letters started. In our way of writing letters, we say, Dear so-and-so, and then we sign our name at the end. In ancient letters, they, they put their name at the beginning. And Paul, from the very beginning, calls himself an apostle, an ambassador. See, in that culture, an apostle was one who was sent out on a mission from a king. They were like a dignitary. They were an envoy. They were like an ambassador in the culture of that day that would send out with a message. But biblically speaking, an apostle was one who had that special privilege of seeing Jesus rise from the dead and also being personally commissioned by Jesus to go forth in power to spread the gospel. So it's a very special category of person, an apostle. I mean, we've just spent two years in John and we've looked at the 12 apostles. But here's the issue. For the Galatian churches, they're questioning Paul's authority. Paul, you're not an apostle because you weren't one of the original 12. You weren't there with Peter. You weren't there with James. You weren't there with John. As a matter of fact, you were a persecutor of the church. So, Paul, you're not a true apostle. 
So Paul begins the letter by saying, listen, let me just give you my credentials. Let me give you my authority as an apostle. Notice what he says there. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. Paul saying, listen, no church made me an apostle. The church in Jerusalem didn't make me an apostle. The church in Antioch didn't make me an apostle. It wasn't conferred to me upon men. Peter didn't come to me and make me an apostle. John didn't come to me and make me an apostle. Barnabas didn't make me an apostle. My apostleship does not come from any human institution or from any other human. My apostleship comes directly through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And so Paul's basically saying here, I'm an apostle directly from Jesus. I'm not making this up. I'm not making up Christianity. Paul's authority came directly from Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says it this way. In, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, even though Paul was not one of the original disciples or apostles, Jesus, in fact, the resurrected Christ, did appear to him and did commission him. We find that in Acts. And in the, in the latter portion of Acts, when Paul's before the Roman authorities, he gives his testimony. So in Acts chapter 26, verses 14 through 17, Paul gives a testimony of what happened to him and how he was commissioned to be an apostle. When he had fallen to the ground... I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, that was Paul's name before Jesus changed it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Jesus appears directly to Paul and says, Paul, I'm commissioning you, I'm appointing you, I'm sending you as an apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul says, listen, my authority comes directly from Jesus. That's his authority. And here's why Paul is so concerned, because if Paul's not an apostle, why would anybody listen to him? Why would anybody care what he has to say? Paul, you're just making this stuff up. And so for Paul, the gospel's on the line here. And so Paul is defending his apostolic authority because he's defending his message that he needs to be listened to because he's not making this stuff up. He is an apostle directly from the Lord. So that's number one, Paul's authority. Let's look at number two. Paul's audience. Well, Paul's writing to the churches, plural, in Galatia. Now, this is not a letter to one particular church per se. It's a letter to a group of churches in a specific geographic area. You don't need to read this now. We don't have time. But if you go back to Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14, you see Paul's first missionary journey. On Paul's first missionary journey, he goes into the province of Galatia, Lystra, Derbe, Iconium, Pisidia, Antioch. He plants churches there. And so as he goes in this, and plants these churches, after his first missionary journey, he returns back to Antioch. And most scholars believe he wrote Galatians right after 
his first missionary journey. This is probably, most scholars believe this is probably Paul's first letter, or at least one of his first letters, written around A.D. 46 to 49. And we're going to see this next week, but I'll just give you a little preview. Paul's pretty ticked off at this church. He doesn't, he doesn't, he dispenses with all the pleasantries, you know, like Ephesians, grace and peace to you, and and I thank my Lord for you, and he he pours all these blessings. No, next week he's just, he starts out, I'm astonished that you guys are falling away from the gospel. So he's a little upset, not a little, he's a lot upset with these churches. We'll get to that next week. So Paul's authority, he's an apostle, Paul's audience to the churches in Galatia, but number three, most importantly, Paul's announcement. We see this in verses three through five. Paul is going to, from the very beginning of this letter, he's going to announce what I call the gospel in a nutshell. Now there's a lot to the gospel, but if you were to succinctly put the gospel into a small summary statement that's pithy, that's short, that's powerful, uh, th- that's just a, a concise summary statement of the gospel, this is what Paul does here. Now, Paul does this in one other place. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4, through 4, Paul gives another summary statement. So let's just, let's just read that. In 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel... I preach to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Okay, what is the message of first importance? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Okay, in the first Corinthians passage, Paul's focus is this is of first importance. And here's the most important thing I can tell you. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again according to the scriptures. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives this summary statement of first importance. Here in Galatians, he gives another summary statement about the gospel. And by the way, the word gospel simply means good news. Good news. So what is the gospel in a nutshell? If somebody were to come to you and say, what is the gospel what would you tell them? Eh, it's a cool kind of music I listen to. What is the gospel? Well, from this summary statement, I want you to understand this morning five key components of the gospel. Paul just really packs in five key, clear teachings about the gospel. And so here's the first. First of all, Jesus voluntarily gave himself on the cross as our substitute. Notice what Paul says there in verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Jesus gave himself. That's obviously talking about the cross, the voluntarily giving of himself to die for us as a substitute. Back in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. 
I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. Jesus had the authority to voluntarily lay down his life, to give his life. And what does he say about husbands? We could talk about that for another sermon, but Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ gave himself up for the church. Christ voluntarily laid down his life for the church. He voluntarily gave his life as a ransom for many. It reminds us of the language back in Isaiah 53. That Old Testament prophecy about Jesus, the suffering Lamb of God. Isaiah 53, 5-6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now I want to show you a very important little word. Verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins? For. You may think, what's the significance of for? Well, let me teach you a Greek, Greek word. You know the Greek word. It's hyper. We, in Greek, it's called huper. It means in the place of, as a substitute for, in the stead of. What that little preposition is teaching is that Jesus substituted himself in our place. He was the one who took the curse of God. He's the one that took the justice of God. He's the one that took the wrath of God. He's the one that took the penalty for sin, not his own, our sin as our substitute in our place being punished for that sin. He gave himself for our sins. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, makes this interesting statement about this verse. These words are great thunderclaps from heaven against all kinds of self-righteousness. What's a thunderclap? He's saying, when we hear that Jesus gave himself for our sins, it's, a, it's, it's thunder from heaven telling us well, we're helpless. We can't save ourselves. We are desperately in need of salvation. You see, here's what sets Christianity apart from all other world systems. Uh, you know this, but let me just talk about it for a moment. We start, and the Bible starts from the vantage point of humans being hopeless, helpless, and hellbound and in need of a Savior because of sin. All other world religions, their issue that they start with is that man needs more enlightenment, man just needs more teaching. Man just needs more improvements. You see, all world religions, their teachers came to give information. They came to dispense enlightenment. No other world religion has God coming in the flesh and dying for sinners. All other world religions have their their leader coming and just teaching information so you can be more enlightened. Notice what's left out of here. Not that Jesus isn't a teacher, but that's not talked about here. You see, the average person on the street, if you were to talk to the average person on the street about Christianity, here's what I think the average person on the street thinks about Christianity. Christianity is you follow the teachings of Jesus so you can be a better person. Or you follow Jesus as a moral example so that you can have a good example to follow. 
Christianity is about following examples and being a better person by following the teachings of Jesus. That's what most people on the street think about. Because it's compared to all other religions. It's about improving your life, a better life, following the example of a, of a religious leader. Now, Jesus was the greatest teacher who ever lived. And Jesus is the greatest example who ever lived. But Jesus did not come as a teacher to merely give us more instruction on how to live a better life. Jesus did not come merely as a life coach to kind of motivate you to have success in life. Jesus didn't come as your genie in a bottle to give you health, wealth, and prosperity so that you could have all of these things in a stress-free life without any suffering or sickness. Jesus did not come just as a good example for you to follow and try really hard to imitate. Jesus came as a substitute to voluntarily die in your place because you and I are desperately in need of salvation. So the first thing about the gospel is that Jesus voluntarily gave himself as a substitute on the cross. But here's the second thing. Notice what Paul says. Jesus died to deliver us from the bondage of this evil age. Okay, verse 4. Who gave himself, that's the cross, for our sins, substitutionary atonement, to deliver us from the present evil age. And that word deliver that Paul uses there, he uses nowhere else in any of his writings. It's a very rare New Testament word. As a matter of fact, the only other time it really shows up is in Stephen's speech. Remember Stephen? Stephen's about to get stoned, and Stephen is recounting the, the history of Israel. And Stephen mentions the nation of Israel being released from bondage in Egypt. In Acts 7.34, Stephen is quoting the Old Testament, and he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. I will come and deliver them. The word that Stephen uses there for God coming to deliver the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage is the same word Paul uses to talk about deliverance out of the present evil age. And so what that word means is people are in bondage. They're in bondage. They're enslaved and need to be rescued. Now the question becomes, well, what are people in bondage to? What do people need to be rescued out of? Well, Paul answers the question for us. This present evil age. Now, some of your translations may say world. It's not the best translation. It's a Greek word that means age. This present evil age. The Bible says in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, he has delivered us, different Greek word there, but the same concept. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, what's the present evil age? The present evil age is the age in which we live right now, that's controlled by this demonic world system where Satan has been given free reign for a season by God to control and influence things. It's the world system. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's this, this present evil age. Now, the Bible speaks of two ages. The Bible speaks of this age and the age to come. 
And in the age to come, Jesus will make all things new with the new heavens and the new earth. But we're not there yet. So we're, we're kind of in this tension between the now and the not yet. As Christians, we live in the now and the not yet. The now is we live in this present evil age. The not yet is we'll be delivered to the final age. But, but we're, we're kind of in two different worlds. We're in this present evil age, but we're really not in this present evil age because we've been saved from the domain of darkness. And so when Christ rescued us from the bondage of evil, when Christ rescued us from the bondage of sin and Satan, it doesn't mean we never struggle anymore with sin. It doesn't mean that Satan doesn't ever influence us. It just means we've been delivered from that enslavement. We've been delivered from that bondage, which means we can never go back into that bondage. We can never go back into that slavery. One commentator said it this way, The deliverance spoken of here is not a removal from the world, but a rescue from the evil that dominates it. Remember what Jesus says about being in the world back in John 17, 15 through 18. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. We've been rescued from this present evil age. So let me just ask you a question. If we need Jesus to give himself for us. And if we need to be rescued from this present evil age, what does that assume about us as humans? It assumes this. Without Jesus, we are hopeless, helpless, and hell-bound. We are helpless. We are hopeless. And we can't rescue ourselves out of this present evil age. It assumes that we are desperately, morally, and spiritually bankrupt. We call this total depravity. We call this total inability. Whatever you want to call it, you and I cannot in and of ourselves do anything morally or spiritually good to put ourselves in God's good graces. We are in bondage to sin without Jesus. So Jesus died for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Number three, you have to go back up to verse one to see this. God raised Jesus from the dead to vindicate his death on the cross. Go back to verse one. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now you may ask, well, why did Paul put who raised him from the dead first, and not after the cross? I think it's because that's, he's talking about his apostleship there, and that's who appeared to Paul was the risen Christ. So we've got the death, burial, and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. So we've got to have the, Jesus voluntarily gave himself for your sins, in your place, to deliver you, to rescue you from the bondage that you are in to this present evil age. And then he rose from the dead to vindicate the cross and to give you eternal life. Okay, what's the fourth aspect? God sovereignly planned this salvation in eternity past. Look at the last clause there, the last phrase in verse 4. According, what's according? Well, Jesus came and delivered us from our sins, delivered us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. The will. I love the word will there. In the original language, it means God's sovereign good pleasure to do it. 
because of his great love for sinners and eternity past and the covenant of the redemption, God the Father, God the Son went into a mutual covenant to rescue sinners in eternity past. It's been God's plan from the very beginning. Listen to Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, if God did this and set this up in eternity past your salvation, this is all of grace. It's all of grace. This is not a plan that you came up with to save yourselves. This is God's sovereign plan to save you from first to last. You did not earn this. You did not deserve this. There was was no part you played in in God's will to come and save you. God didn't look down to the corridors of time and look at your life and say, hey, Sean Cole is going to be so awesome. He's going to trust me when he's eight years old. I'm going to pick him for my team. No, God looked down to the corridors of time and saw a dead corpse who would never in a million years trust Jesus unless God intervened in sovereign grace to raise me from the dead. And so it's God's will from the very beginning to save sinners out of his great love for his people. So what is the gospel? Jesus Christ voluntarily gave himself for our sins, substitution, to deliver us from the bondage of this present evil age. And then he rose from the dead. This is all according to the will of God. And then what, how does Paul put the final stamp of approval on this? What's Paul's final punctuation? What's, what's the last thing he says there? Fifth, God sent Jesus ultimately to glorify himself in saving sinners. Look at the very last verse, verse 5. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says this salvation from first to last really is not about us at all. It's about God's glory. Now we get in on it because we're saved, but ultimately it's about God's glory forever and ever. Amen. It reminds me of Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Think about this for a moment. If we are hopeless and we are helpless and we are hell-bound sinners that deserve nothing but God's wrath and nothing but God's justice and we can't save ourselves and we're in bondage to sin, if ever we're going to be saved, it's not going to be because of us. It's going to be because of God. And all glory goes to him. You are not going to step foot into heaven and say, man, I got here on my own merits. Look what I did. You're not going to boast. I'm not sure what you're going to do when you fall into heaven, but I know one thing that you're not going to do. You're not going to say, I got myself here. You're going to fall on your face before God and say, thank you for saving me. It's all because of your glory. So if someone were to ask you, what's the gospel? You could say, I can tell you what the gospel is in a nutshell. Very simply, you can say it this way. The gospel is God's plan to glorify himself in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for your sins. So it's all by grace alone. Very simple. Now there's a lot more to it, but you can give a a very summary statement. It's God's plan to glorify himself by sending Jesus to die for your sins and rise again, and this is all received by grace alone. Notice what he says up there, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. Why is sovereign grace so hard to swallow? 
Why do people struggle with this concept that, that we need rescuing? Well, I think there's two fundamental problems. Here's problem number one. We, at the core of our beings, don't really think we're all that bad. What do you mean I'm totally depraved? What do you mean I'm helpless and hopeless and hell-bound? What do you mean I can't contribute to my salvation? When you tell somebody they're a sinner in need of rescuing and they're in bondage to sin, that's offensive, and we don't truly actually believe we're, not, we're that bad. Because what do we do? We compare ourselves to others. Compared to so-and-so, I'm not that bad. So that's, that's issue number one. We really don't think we're as bad as we really are. But here's the second issue. We are hardwired as humans to try to find that rescue, to try to find that salvation, to try to find that purpose, to try to find that meaning in anything but Jesus. We are hardwired to find that. So let me talk to religious people for a moment here this morning. If you're a religious person, you can fall into the trap as a religious person of thinking, if I just keep the rules, God will bless me with eternal life. If I just keep the rules. I, I'm trying to be really religious. I'm trying to really keep my, my life in order. And if I just do all the right things, then God is obligated to bless me with eternal life. Getting eternal life is by living by the rules. That's the religious person. Let me talk to the non-religious person. Maybe you're not religious here. You may think, I don't care about eternal life. I don't care about living by the rules. I want the blessing now. So I'm going to grab as much as I can grab right now. I can get as much as I want right now because immediate gratification is what I want now. The religious person says, i got to work for what I can get in the future. The, the non-religious person says, i got to work for what I can get right now. Either way, you're working for something that you want to get, whether it's eternal blessing, whether it's temporary immediate blessing. And here's the truth. You will never find for religious people, for non-religious people, and everybody in between, you will never find the satisfaction, the joy, the purpose, the meaning in any of those things. You'll only find it in Jesus. Because see, your heart wants to grab onto something to give you purpose. Your heart wants to grab onto something that's going to give you pleasure, that's going to give you purpose, that's going to give you joy, that's going to give you meaning. That's why you were created, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's why you were created. The problem is, is when you go towards things that aren't Christ, and the Bible calls that idolatry. You see, when your heart goes towards things that aren't Jesus, you become an idolater, and Jesus is the only one that can fill that void. Jesus is the only one that can give you that, that purpose, that meaning that you desperately long for. So when you think about, man, Sean's talking about I need to be rescued from the bondage to sin. You may think to yourself, you know what, I'm not really in bondage to sin. That's somebody else. I'm not in bondage to sin. Because when we think about sin, what do we think about? Well, I'm not an axe murderer. Well, praise the Lord, I'm glad. Never met one, but I'm glad you're not an axe murderer. Well, I haven't, like, cheated on my wife this week. Well, praise the Lord, I'm glad you've gone a week without cheating on your wife. I haven't done, we think, when we think of sin, we think of these big, heinous sins. But let me just ask you a question this morning. You may need rescuing from the bondage of sin to legalism. You may need rescuing from legalism. You may be living your whole life thinking, I've got to live by the rules. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to earn this. I've got to earn that. Your whole life is trying to work for God's approval. You may need to be delivered from that sin. 
and that is sin. For others of you, you may need to be delivered from the sin and the bondage of despair. You're at that point where you know you're a Christian, you know you've been saved by grace, but you cannot live in that grace. You're always living in self-defeat, you're living in self-condemnation, you're living in self-loathing, you think Jesus would never love me, I've sinned beyond his grasp, I've probably lost my salvation, he can never love me. That is sin as well, and you may need to be rescued from that bondage. And some of you may need to be rescued from the bondage of recklessness. You're like, I don't care about being religious. I don't really bothered by the fact that Jesus doesn't love me. I know he loves me. I know he saved me, so I'm going to live however I want with no sense for the consequences. Because after all, I got my free ticket to heaven. I said the prayer, did that, done that, got the T-shirt. Jesus has got to forgive me, right? I can live however I want. Some of you may need to be delivered from that type of bondage. All of us, are struggling with some type of sin in our lives. And the gospel comes along and says, we need rescuing from the bondage to sin. And this is where the book of Galatians comes in. Because the book of Galatians comes in and says, you can, be, you can be free from that sin. You can be delivered from that sin. You can be freed to love Jesus. You can experience the power of the gospel in your lives. You know, we need to hear the message of the gospel again. What Galatians is going to do is it's going to reintroduce you to the gospel. And you may think, I don't need to be reintroduced to the gospel. I know what the gospel is. Do you know what the gospel is? I'm saved by grace. Do you live by grace? Galatians is going to reorient us to the gospel, that we need to hear the truth, that the gospel is God's plan to glorify himself, by sending Jesus to die on the cross and rise again so that we could receive that by grace. So my question is, are you ready to embark on this journey to be reintroduced to the gospel? Are you ready to see how Jesus can rescue you from bondage to sin? Are you ready to go on this journey through the book of Galatians? I hope you are because it's going to reintroduce us to the most vital truth that we could ever hear, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you to bow your heads and let's go to the Lord and let's ask for grace, let's ask for peace, let's ask for understanding as we reflect upon this truth this morning and we think about what it means to follow Christ in the gospel as we start the book of Galatians. So let's bow our heads this morning. Some in this room that are struggling with legalism. There may be some that are struggling with despair and guilt. And Lord, there may be some that are struggling with recklessness. And Lord, there may be some that don't even feel like they're struggling and they may be blind to the fact that there is a struggle. Lord, all of us in this room need the gospel. There may be some in this room that need it for the very first time. They've never, for the very first time, trusted Jesus Christ alone to save them. They've never admitted their need to be rescued from the bondage of sin. Lord, would today be their day of salvation? Where for the very first time they see with clear eyes their need to be rescued from the dominion of sin and to be saved by your grace. Lord, for those of us who have been saved by grace, help us to live by grace. Help us to be reacquainted with the truths of the gospel. Help us to be liberated from any of these ditches that we may find ourselves falling into. May we hear the announcement of the good news of the gospel this morning. Thank you, Lord, that it was your good will, your sovereign will, your sovereign pleasure to glorify yourself by sending Jesus to die and rise again, that we might receive him by grace alone, through faith alone. We love you, we honor you, 
We look forward to this journey through Galatians. We want to honor you in your word, and we want to honor you with our lives. So help us to do that by your grace alone. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.